This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast for November 24th, 2009. I'm Jeffrey Long, an alumni researcher for the Convergence Culture Consortium here at the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. This Colloquium Podcast, recorded at the kickoff lecture for the Consortium's 2009 Futures of Entertainment Conference, features Jeff Vandermeer and Kevin Smokler talking about the private and the public in transmedia storytelling and self-promotion. A writer for the New York Times Book Review, The Huffington Post, and The Washington Post, Jeff Vandermeer's latest books are Finch and Book Life. Kevin Smokler is the editor of Bookmark Now, is a contributor to the Los Angeles Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, Fast Company, and NPR, and is the CEO of Booktour.com. You can find all of our podcasts in the iTunes Store and on our website at cms.mid.edu. So hi, welcome to the uh, Comparative Media Studies Colloquium. My name is William Riccio. <laughs> And um, actually, I'm not going to do the intros tonight. Jeff Long is. But first, I just want to say that while normally I would stop here, say CMS Colloquium, it's actually also the kickoff of a conference we're having this weekend, Futures of Entertainment. This is the fourth instantiation. And that particular event is one that brings together academics with folks from the uh, media industries. And it's a really interesting space because these are two cultures. We talk about them a lot. I don't think they talk about us very much at all. But it's terrific to sit together in conversation. And one of the big themes we have this year is transmedia. And that's, uh, hi, Victoria. That's where, this, uh, that's where this talk is headed tonight. So without further ado, let me introduce Jeffrey Long. Jeff is an alum of CMS. He did his master's here. He's also a researcher and director of communications at the Gambit Game Labs, which we have here. So Jeff, please. Thank you, William. Um, Thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, this event this evening is actually something that I've wanted to do for a long, long time. Um, ever since I was a graduate student here, I have been uh, no, I haven't, I haven't hidden uh, my love for science fiction and writing and really you know, the kind of work that we do as storytellers on the printed page. Um, but I've also been looking at extending that kind of work out into the transmedia space, as William said, something that we're talking in great length about at the conference this uh, weekend. Um, the gentleman that we'll be talking to you here this evening, um, the first gentleman is Jeff Vandermeer, um, who is a author, an anthologist, and most recently the creator of a book called Book Life, um, which is all about th how new technology is affecting us as writers and how um, we as writers and creative individuals uh, can develop techniques of dealing with that technology, both in our public lives and our private lives. Um, after his talk this evening. Um, there will be a Q&A led by my friend Kevin Smokler, um, who Kevin and I go way back. Um, we're friends from South by Southwest uh, from 2000 and <laughs> um, and Kevin uh, is a wonderful, wonderful soul, another writer, another anthologist, an NPR commentator, and currently the CEO of booktour.com. Um, Kevin's passion for uh, the written word exceeds even my own. Um, and I can't wait for him to talk to you about his own experiences um, on kind of the same plane that, that Jeff will be talking about. So again, thank you all for coming, and uh, Mr. Vandermeer. Hi, thanks very much, appreciate the introduction. Um, <clears throat> this is actually event, I think, 13, hopefully lucky 13, of uh, 28 over 35 days. So one thing that we might get into in the discussion is uh, talking about kind of the meta universe of book tours and the various levels at which they can exist. Um, I am touring behind two different books, a novel, Finch, which I won't be talking that much about, 
and uh, book life. And I'm mentioning, uh, holding this up only because uh, this is actually my personal kind of yearbook copy, <laughs> which is to say every reader that I'm meeting, I'm actually getting to sign it. So before you leave, if you uh, are so inclined, it'd be wonderful if you would personalize it. You can say whatever you like. Uh, my best friend actually crossed out my bio and wrote, Jeff Vandermeer is a curmudgeon and does not get any ice cream. So I'm fair game for whatever you like. So. Um, <coughs> What I'm going to give you is probably more of a street-level thing than a theory type of thing, because uh, basically for the past 25 years I've been involved in writing cross-genre fiction, many of it, much of it uh, meta and experimental, as well as writing uh, non-fiction in the form of reviews, criticism, and uh, essays, and much of it through blogs or microblog micro uh, platforms. Uh, I also have run my own publishing company, and uh, back in the 90s we did one of the first, I guess, electronic books called Metro, where we actually tried to recreate the physical reading experience uh, in an electronic environment down to the point of actually having like uh, coffee stains and whatnot on the uh, pages. <laughs> it was incredibly difficult to, uh, to use <laughs> and not particularly successful, but it was very interesting. Uh, we also at that time on our website, uh, we were relatively whimsical. Uh, in addition to trying to sell books, we tried to uh, provide an experience for readers that was slightly different. So we'd have different mirror pages, which is to say, if you clicked on a particular word, you would appear to be on the same page, but you were actually on some other page <laughs> that would then lead you in uh, various wormhole fashions to various metafictions that had nothing to do with selling books. <laughs> um, I've also worked at various times as a publisher, uh, uh, publicist, agent, uh, creative consultant, and creative writing teacher. Uh, so I flourished as a writer and editor for two main reasons. Uh, one is that I create things that people find interesting and that I'm also not uh, unwilling to roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty on the promotional side. And this is something that has coincided with the rise of the internet and social media and kind of the blurring of the lines between the public and the private. So in this context, I'm going to talk today about innovative storytelling, again, that blurring of the public and the private lives of writers, the ways in which PR and creativity coincide or, coincide or collide, and how the idea of balance is more important now than ever before. And also about how the main opportunities before us constitute dangers for those who accept new paradigms too quickly and without thought. Um, we will probably, I, I've actually asked Kevin, kind of, <laughs> uh, to kind of test this, this talk. So, so I'm hoping he'll ask some tough questions afterwards, and, and uh, maybe we'll also get into uh, theory at that point. Um, Basically, the situation now on a strategic level for a writer like myself, a mid-list writer, uh, is one in which a saying of Sun Tzu about the warrior skilled in indirect warfare really makes sense, which is to say he said that the warrior skilled in indirect warfare is inexhaustible as heaven and earth and as unending as rivers and streams and passes away only to return like the four seasons. And this really is the kind of relationship between the writer and electronic media at the moment, given how quickly a writer must adjust to and take advantage of opportunities. It also reflects the ephemeral quality of the internet because of the vast amount of information and opinion posted every single day, every single hour, every single minute, uh, supplanting the information that was posted just a minute before. So to exist in this world, the modern writer, and those of us who are transitional in terms of generation, this is very important, <laughs> you need to be fluid and flexible while retaining inner calm and balance. Um, I also think that there are certain qualities that a writer needs to possess in both their career and their creativity now that are more important than they used to be. Centeredness because of the fragmentation of new media and social media. Uh, adaptability 
Uh, and also honesty, because a lot of the social media platforms out there are basically a way of reflecting ourselves back at ourselves. And so sometimes it becomes even more difficult than it has been in the past for a writer to get an idea of uh, an honest opinion of their work or to get kind of outside of this kind of blinkered thinking about even their careers. Um, we all know what the future direction of the book is. It's thinking of the book as a mutable object. I think it's equally limiting to think of the book as electronic um, as it is to think of it as being a physical artifact out in the world. I think that basically writers and publishers have not given enough thought to the delivery system for the book, um, it being part of the creative process and uh, how the choices for an individual project in terms of what kind of platform you're going to use should, should affect more than just the layout. It should result in a lot more of thinking outside of the box, so to speak. So what also becomes clear when considering the standard life cycle of a book, which is where a lot of writers start in terms of trying to figure out <clears throat> what they're going to do in terms of promotion, what they're going to do in terms of their career, is that the standard life cycle reproduced still in most writing manuals and places like that is uh, not at a high enough level of detail. It's useful for the writer trying to figure out timing issues and cause and effect, but it doesn't really get to the core of the process. So that process, and I'm sure you've heard these before, but in terms of stripping things out and not thinking of electronic or physical books, is basically creation and perfection of content, acquisition of a platform or format for the content, creation and perfection of the skin, the aesthetic and context for the content, accessibility for the content, distribution basically, and visibility. And uh, I think that uh, although these may be things that are basic to what you study, uh, they're not basic to most writers out there in terms of thinking about the book. So what I thought I'd do is I would kind of, kind of rush in and, and, and plunge in and, and talk about one specific project and then go back to the general before, uh, before continuing. There's one book that in terms of talking about new media and talking about how the past and the future kind of collide that uh, has helped me kind of understand how to both use social media and also to, um, to think about the book in a different way. And that's uh, City of Saints and Mad Men, which is it's kind of funny actually. A fan gave me this really beat up copy that's completely <laughs> torn apart now <laughs> along the way. And uh, I, I said I would actually replace it because I have another copy. But, uh, so I actually have a copy with me, which is kind of strange. Um, and actually, it's exactly in the condition I imagined it would be after about five years. Um, yeah, like I said, this is a tr transitional project for me that, that benefited from internet and uh, from new media, but also came into being before the majority of those opportunities existed. And yet again, as I said, it's provided, uh, been a great benefit to me in planning for my personal future and the, what I think uh, where the future of books is going. Uh, basically, just to give you a little bit of background on it, it's a collection of interrelated tales about an imaginary city, kind of in the style of Borges or Italo Calvino. And it's the first book in a cycle that I just completed with, with the new novel. It took me from 1992 to 1999 to write the initial stories. And I had a rather interesting road to publication. Initially, it was rejected by all of the major publishers. And I had a lot of weird experiences with indie presses. Um, one publisher said that they'd be willing to publish the book if I changed the setting to Paris around 1900, which was impossible considering it was actually in a fantasy setting and um, had a, a, an element that turns out not to be supernatural, but seems like it is at first. And another said that they'd publish it if I changed the art to uh, reflect the changed the stories to reflect the art that they were going to use with the stories, which again was kind of unacceptable. And a third actually became religious and uh, between my, the acceptance of the, of the piece and publication wanted me to change them to um, 
parallels to the Old Testament, uh, the characters, because of their religious conversion. <laughs> um, and, and then finally, and I'm just telling the story because it's kind of funny, uh, an English publisher was interested, and they, um, they went to all this hubbub, hubbub about uh, doing video games and online stuff, and they were going to do all this revolutionary promotion for the book. And uh, they, all they wanted me to do is collect advance orders for a limited edition, in addition to the trade that they were going to do. And so I did that and didn't hear anything for six months. And then I got a call, and this guy, the publisher, it was the publisher, and he said, I'm really sorry, but I'm on my honeymoon, and we've spent all the advance order money, and, and I'm sorry I've dissolved the publishing company as well. Okay, thanks, bye. <laughs> uh, the weird thing is I found out a year later he was actually in an insane asylum, and he had had a nervous breakdown because of his publishing company going bankrupt, and that uh, he thought telling me he was on his honeymoon was actually a better thing than telling me that he was in an insane asylum. <coughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's lovely. I almost gave up at that point, um, as, as one does. Um, so finally, I found a publisher named Prime, and they were willing to give me uh, creative control over just about everything connected to the book. There was only one problem. They were a legitimate publisher that paid regular advances and everything, but they used print-on-demand technology. And my vision for the book was elaborate from a layout point of view, um, including illustrations and photographs from about eight artists. So back then, back in the wild old days of 2001 or 2002, <laughs> POD still had a lot of uh, difficulty with quality control, which has kind of gone away now. But um, book text often printed very light, like a bad photocopy. Uh, since then, the quality has improved to the point that it's often impossible to tell a POD book from a book published through offset printing processes. Uh, but back in the second half of 2001, it was folly to suggest not only doing a book with different fonts, since some fonts print better than others through POD, but also a book with illustrations and photographs. You could almost get better results by photocopying it and spiral binding it. And yet, I had this tremendous opportunity to do something different, and they didn't mind how long the book was. And as you can see, it turned out to be something like 500 pages. <laughs> this is really a stained copy. Um, <laughs> and didn't mind uh, additional art, and didn't mind me working directly with a designer. So in essence, it became kind of a self-publishing project in terms of my involvement with it. The Catch-22, the irony, was absolutely delicious. I could have this complete control, and yet how could the book in my head ever match uh, the book that would make it to the printed page? The result would probably be like a facsimile copy of a book, all of whose actual copies had been destroyed long ago by wear, tear, and time. So. You know, despite this, I was kind of in denial about POD's limitations. I simply did not acknowledge them. There was this book in my head that I demanded be out in the real world. And I could see it, every page of it, every nuance of the layout. And even if they couldn't print it that way, I was damn well going to create it that way, <laughs> which is a kind of madness, actually. Six months of agony followed, over 2,000 emails with the design team, a corrupted Ventura publishing program that lost two months of work, uh, creating the illuminated manuscript look of this thing. It's kind of an updated illuminated manuscript with uh, running across the image so the text goes from side to side. It took about two months even though it looks really simple <laughs> and um, took a lot of effort on the designer's part. But the huge problem was the photographs because they would definitely reproduce badly. They might in fact look like black squares of blackness. Um, so the designer tried all kinds of file formats in Photoshop and all kinds of tricks to, let, to try to make them uh, reproduce less hideously. In fact, our test was if I printed it out and photocopied it at Kinko's, did it look okay or did it look like crap? Because as Prime informed us at some point during the process, 
the publisher, the printer, didn't use metal plates or even paper plates. They basically used a glorified copy machine. So we went back to the drawing board several times, even labeled some photographs in the book as damaged, rescued from a fire, so that, <laughs> which is a very effective way of getting around a constraint, right? And uh, that way it would look like, a, you know, it could look like a black cat had thrown up on a black carpet and it wouldn't make any difference. So uh, we'd now been working on the design of the book for over nine months, and uh, in mid-May of 2002, after eight years spent writing the stories in City of Saints, and after seven years of trying to find a publisher, after nine months of pre-production, um, I had the first copies of the book in my hand, and it did not suck, <laughs> it, to use a technical term. It had, no, it had some problems, problems that I'd spend the next year sorting out, but to the average reader, most of those problems didn't register. So after you know, all of this effort, all of these false starts, and uh, producing something that still wasn't, wasn't perfect, the reaction was actually rather satisfying in that the book uh, got rave reviews and was on a lot of years' best lists and uh, sold about 7,000 copies despite being unavailable in brick-and-mortar stores, which at that time was rather absurd, and is why it got picked up by large publishers uh, after that. Um, and it's, Basically, you know, it's inspired video games, costumes, and tattoos, and all kinds of, of, of things on social media, uh, including role-playing games. And it was, at the time, the most elaborate uh, book ever created using the POD printing process back in 2001. So some of the things that I learned from doing City of Saints are general in nature, and they apply equally in this uh, new media age as in the old. Um, I reiterate them here because the truth is that anything difficult doing well, no matter what your tools, what tools you use to, use, to, to do them, is a constant war between your vision, your will, and inertia. And that's the same now as it was 20 years ago, no matter what other changes have occurred. The fact is that attention to detail can and should become obsessive on certain projects. Knowing what you can and can't do if you have limited resources is important so that you can fight against the constraint of limited resources only when the goal is worth it. Be prepared for a war of attri uh, uh, attrition on some projects and don't let it rattle you. Always fight for creative elements you know are right. And I know that this is very basic, but it wasn't something that I learned until this book, which is that setbacks <laughs> are huge opportunities for personal and professional growth. I learned more from the mistakes made on City of Saints over nine months than any other book that I've ever been involved with. And then I think very important is also to see the entire shape or form of your plan when making tactical decisions so you don't act out of an impulse at odds with your goals. One of the secrets of the new media age on the higher strategic level is that not much has changed except the pace at which you must adapt to situations and unexpected issues. And even in that respect, is it because we must adapt or because we can act quickly that we act quickly sometimes without thinking? So the speed of the internet, the ways in which the opportunities can pop up and dangers erupt, do affect projects for writers and the promotion of projects. And here are a few lessons learned that are relevant, I think, in any context, but especially to use of new media. The limitless possibilities now available through traditional and new media do not translate into limited ability to take advantage of them on your part. My prior general point about limited resources still applies. There are many free ways to help your creativity and career, but the core creation, the book, still introduces the idea of constraint and restraint. New media breeds a sense of swift entitlement and accomplishment. Be careful not to abandon a strategy or tactic too soon because of unrealistic ideas about how fast something should be happening. Because of the fluidity of the internet, situations that seem to box you in or appear intolerable and permanent often turn out to be swept away <clears throat> in a matter of weeks or months and the paradigm reset. Therefore, sometimes waiting out a situation is better than giving in to the temptation to take precipitous action.
And although new media and the internet project a sense of rapid evolution and constant change, the needs and cycles of the physical world still trump the electronic world. <clears throat> now on the creative side, uh, the book reflected back some influence of hypertext experiments. Uh, for example, the idea of putting together a story <coughs> by clicking through and piecing it together. There's actually words on the spine that correlate to a story inside, and basically you put the story together by going several different places in the book. Um, and then also, I think probably the most important, uh, like taking something that was originally an idea on the internet, or at least that I first saw on the internet, and then um, putting it back into traditional media, there's an encrypted story in here, which um, is just literally a series of numbers, and the, uh, the way to decode it is through other stories in the book. And the reason I did this is because I thought it would be very interesting, almost kind of like hypertext text experience, ex, um, experiment on the written page, because as you decode it, you take the emotional resonance of where you got the word from in the other novellas, and it actually adds an additional heightened uh, emotion to the story. Uh, at the same time, the reader is actually creating the story as they go along word by word, which means that if you write the story in a particular way, you can create all kinds of miniature uh, heightened tension within a single sentence, <laughs> which I found interesting as well. Um, <coughs> in a general sense, what I learned creatively, and again, this is something I think we see is extremely underused with regard to the book, is you've, you have control over your version of a book. Make sure that you take the opportunity to express your creativity to the maximum. If you can do anything, do anything within limits, which is to say that as we move toward a creator-controlled process, this should unleash a wave of innovation and approaches to the book by individual authors, a playfulness that is currently underused in this context. A POD book is not an offset printed book, is not a Kindle book, is not a Sony reader book, is not a PDF book, is not a Word document to be crude for a second. Each form contains the seed of a different approach to entering into a dialogue with the text through innovation in layout, design, illustration, even the inclusion of music and other media. Writers who decide to use self-publishing tools to create a book should be doing more than simply aping what's come before. Now, so at heart, City of Saints was an extended form of play. I mean, it's really what it was. It was an extended form of, 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 of use of the imagination, enhanced by POD, ultimately, <laughs> and informed by hypertextual experiments brought back into the world of physical books. And I bring up this, the idea of a sense of play, even though it seems basic, because we often see it as being immature or frivolous. And uh, we do this because there seems to be no immediate uh, practical benefit. How can you break down the value of it into dollars and cents? Modern ideas of functionality and utility ignore or have no, sense, no space for the sense of play that precedes and infuses creative endeavors. And I think also the constant compulsion to monetize the internet and to make social media, for example, sell books contributes to this paradigm as well. A lot of writers are not thinking about the creative side when they use social media. <coughs> but in the new media age, play can lead directly to creativity as well. It can become part of your work process. Um, having a personal blog that often emphasizes strategies for sustainable creativity, not to mention a book on the same subject, and now a website devoted to the book, has put me in the strange position of being asked to explain the soundness of my own personal approach to the Internet. And I say strange because imagination and sense of play are so integral to it that except for concerted campaigns for individual books, I don't have any strategy. <laughs> Um, for example, a friend recently asked me about the strategy behind my constant profile photo changes and status message changes on Facebook. And this gave me a bit of a chuckle because the fact is my Facebook strategy is simply to have fun. Uh, 
I mean, you've probably seen on Facebook that there are some writers who actually put the word novelist before their name, which I always find quite amazingly um, ridiculous. Um, but uh, you know, I take a more laid-back approach. I've posted status messages pretending to be a wombat, a toad, and a plastic alien baby, for example, with the appropriate photograph. And uh, this type of behavior has elicited a host of playful responses and given me the beginnings of two short stories. One of these stories, Komodo, seems instructive as an example of guerrilla storytelling, of using the element of surprise that's so hardwired into the psyche of surrealists, along with the idea of constraint put forth by the largely French school of Olipu, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, and in this case, Facebook providing the constraint. So I changed my profile photo to a plastic green alien baby. Uh, head, actually, of this thing. And then I began to post status messages as if I was actually on my way to a costume party wearing the head, or some version of it. Okay. Now, actually, the I, in this case, was the narrator of the story, but my readers assumed that I meant me. And readers playfully followed these initial postings, speculating as to where the party was, and playing along with the little imaginative grace notes that accompanied them. So it was at this point that I began to change the context. The narrator reveals in an incremental kind of frog-in-a-hot-pot way <laughs> that in actual fact uh, he is not on, on Earth but on another planet, that there is no costume party, that in fact he is a human being hiding among an alien race using the severed, hollowed-out head of one of their members. <laughs> now, <laughs> as the narrator slowly revealed these truths about the status messages, my readers began to react in very odd ways. <laughs> Some chose to believe that I was still actually at a party and simply being darkly whimsical. Others thought that there was some symbolic meaning to what I was doing. Still others became nervous and posted comments attacking the validity of my story. Stop playing around. <laughs> and there were other responses too, but those are the main ones. But because of these responses, the narrative took on unexpected dimensions. One reader told me to stop joking about wearing an alien head, and then I posted a status message in which I detailed the process by which the narrator had murdered the alien and hollowed out his horse crab-like head horrifying him, obviously. <laughs> in another case, a reader asked why I was wearing a disguise, and it turned out that the narrator was doing so for other reasons that I hadn't realized until then. Further, a series of questions from readers trying to determine the validity, the level of reality I was working on, allowed my, na my narrator to answer in ways that made me realize that, in a sense, the person the narrator was actually speaking to was indistinguishable from the people he was responding to on Facebook. In other words, it turned out that the narrator was speaking to someone who would have gotten the bends, so to speak, if the true context of his story wasn't slowly doled out in small portions. I wouldn't have known this without the responses. Now, all kinds of other uh, further narrative complexity involving Komodo dragons with transdimensional portals in their poison glands, angels whose wings burn up on re-entry into the atmosphere, and a lot of other controlled insanity came directly out of this interaction. The story is actually probably one of the most ambitious I've done in the last few years, and it would not exist in this kind of meta level and with the additional uh, kind of narrative drive that it has without that interaction from the readers. And I find this kind of experiment of interest because it shows a way for one's public persona to be used for private creativity. This to me is much more interesting than, for example, as cool as it was, uh, an outward focused experiment like uh, Neil Gaiman's recent uh, reader created story. Uh, for which he used his followers. It's easy to use social media to build public stories, to create communal projects, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's often more of an admi administrative or organizational function than it is an interesting creative experiment. But when we can blur the line between fiction and fact, when we can create doubt about what type of storytelling occurs, 
I think there are some amazing opportunities for truly revolutionary approaches that stretch our imaginations and put readers in uncomfortable but ultimately rewarding places. <clears throat> now, another approach to new media that begins to blur the line between creativity and career, the public and the private, is the rise of the artifact attached to the book. And I mean, I know you're very familiar with this. I mean, what I mean by artifact is a tangible or physical, a tangible physical or virtual creation in support of your book that can be leveraged through a platform or, or an opportunity. And an artifact often um, enhances your ability to acquire leverage by providing added value to readers or to the gatekeepers who decide whether or not to grant you an opportunity. They also either directly or indirectly support your message about your book or other creative project. But artifacts possess their own aesthetic integrity and can be powerful expressions of the imagination in their own right. Sometimes they transcend from adjuncts to your main purpose into their own creative projects and thus support your private book life as well. By contrast, what I call PR objects have no real intrinsic value as creative projects across uh, new media. Imagination is required to envision and create them, but they more directly serve the purpose of promoting your book. Moreover, there is less differentiation between objects than between artifacts. All banner ads look more or less the same. All, photo all postcards must follow the same rules about where to put address information. But artifacts, as I said, do blur the line between promotion and writing, between career and creativity. And three examples, keeping in mind that although some of these do not require the internet or, or, or web 2.0 to exist, they do require social media, at least, for visibility. And they do require the ability to disseminate information quickly across the internet. Uh, the last book, uh, Finch, actually has a soundtrack by Murder by Death that was actually, we could only really put it together by <coughs> making it available for download on the internet and, um, and, and communicating basically across three continents to create it. The, uh, the reason I find it of interest is because, you know, theoretically it's promoting the book, but it's actually creating both of our, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of feeding in and cross-pollinating our creative processes. For example, Murder by Death had to go into the studio to do this soundtrack, something they don't normally do. They usually do a more kind of freeform thing for their albums. It's almost like their normal albums are like live albums. And so it actually changed the way they do their processes in such a way that for their new album that's coming out, they are going to be doing things in a very different way. At the same time, hearing their music and having an inside look at their processes as musicians has led to a point where I see the novel differently and thus see my fiction in a different light. So I find that that's an interesting way of kind of cross-pollinating publicity and, again, your private creativity and making something work for both. Um, I've also uh, done short films, which I think are kind of interesting but kind of fall into the same mode as Murder by Death. The other thing that I think hasn't been done enough, and it kind of fits in with the Facebook story I was talking about, is the idea of alternate reality games across the internet. And I'm sure this is something that at MIT you've talked about a lot. Um, but it's not something that writers themselves, <laughs> who are you know, out there, are doing that much of. Um, I know that several writers have been stymied by the fact that the tools they try to use don't actually kind of live up to what they want, like Second Life. A lot of writers I know, from Caitlin Kernan on down, just, they, they go in there, they think this is a cool virtual environment, this is going to be an awesome place to play, but also get information about my book out, and it winds up just being this morass of something that, that they didn't expect, and they can't seem to get any, any traction there. But the idea of using the internet as a kind of meta notebook across which you scrawl your own shoes, your own adventures, or other alternative reality games, and in so doing engage new readers, is a really great idea. Um, Catherine Valente recently uh, built an alternate reality game out of the equivalent of a piece of string, two trash can lids, and a plastic bag, as far as I'm concerned. 
Uh, she writes that uh, it was a kind of virtual novella in the world of uh, the novel, accessible by readers through blogs, Twitter feeds, forums, and Facebook profiles. And hidden in the text were links to puzzles, digital art, audio files, video, and music. I created a video trailer for the novel, which also served as a gateway to the game. And we t uh, tunneled several thousand readers through the linked sites in the six weeks before the novel came out and ramped up excitement for the book considerably. It was a huge undertaking that involved many writers and artists working in tandem and anonymously, but its success in terms of an online presence for the book before the book ever existed in the world cannot be overstated. I find the implications of that experiment and others exciting because it provides, again, a great example of how to do something that enriches both your public and your private book life as a writer. <coughs> what I think is even more interesting and something that hasn't been touched on is the idea that in the future there will be writers who self-define as guerrilla storytellers whose main purpose is to create fiction narratives in the form of vast fragmented books spread across different types of social media and other platforms. <coughs> now, those are all very positive aspects of creativity and, and, and also ways in which you can uh, stimulate your career at the same time. But I also think that it's very important to talk about balance. Uh, a lot of writers that I know are really struggling with this issue right now. I know Kevin has also written a book about this, basically. So, you know, you can, you can have this synergy between your public and your private book life. But at the same time, it can become a trap throwing your life out of balance. Losing balance means losing perspective. When you lose perspective, you no longer understand the real value of the elements in your book life, and you distort the importance of promotion weighed against the actual writing. I mean, you rationalize web sur search uh, surfing as research. You tell yourself that all you need is one more push and it'll be over the hill. You respond to email as it appears in your inbox rather than developing a protocol for response. And I actually know many professional writers who are really close to exhaustion right now just from trying to keep up with all of this trying, you know, kind of to, 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 to run in this hamster wheel and, and, uh, and, and basically kind of dying in the, in the traps. Um, in all things, you become completely reactive to stimuli. And this is one consequence, I think, of a modern book life that's drifted because our platforms and opportunities and tools create a false sense of control. By simply responding to information that comes to you from conduits, you feel you're closer to achieving goals, but there's the nagging sense behind it that instead all you're doing is treading water. The fact is you simply cannot be everywhere at once unless you literally download your brain into the internet for, uh, somehow. For this reason, writers really need to be aware when considering the use of new media, of social media, that some forms will fragment you more than others. I mean, to me at least, each puts a different strain on your attention span. Some require only a sliver, but that sliver can devour your day. Others require much more uh, than a sliver of your mind, but don't give you the feeling of being nibbled to death by tiny sharks. And I think overuse of Facebook or Twitter and writing on computers where can, we can be interrupted at any moment affects our attention span. Um, others turn perfectly viable tactics into an unsupportable and detrimental overall strategy. As a writer, I feel the greatest dangers of engaging with social media is the constant daily loss of uninterrupted time not only to write but to think about writing. Many writers and others who depend on the internet find themselves controlled by their involvement with the electronic world without even realizing it. They still think they're in charge, but they're not. Their tactics have become their strategy. The electronic world also sucks up time when we as writers could be observing the physical world, which is where all great fiction comes from. The funny thing, the ironic thing, is actually that reading books provides a surprisingly effective antidote to this addiction. The ability to focus on a long, complex book not only provides evidence that your attention span hasn't become too fragmented, 
but it also helps to wean you off of your dependency. <clears throat> Writing one also has this effect, I think. Working on a novel forces me to disconnect from the internet and everything else that causes fragmentation. We're told to multitask, but no one can multitask forever without suffering the consequences. Without that time away, the lack of solitude can eat away at your center. In some writers, it can shorten attention spans and make it difficult to get to that deep, submerged place that your power comes from. Instead of allowing things to come to you, come into you, you are continually projecting things out from you. It will seem as if you are, in a sense, accumulating more power, but in fact you are diminished because nothing is flowing into you. It creates fatigue, a hollow feeling, and over time resentment. Over the years, and even as I have gained more perspective and more balance, I'm no wiser about the amount of what people call white noise that I allow to accumulate around me as a result. Except it's not really white noise in aggregate, it's more a dark noise, a noise with a substance and texture like an electric shock or sandpaper. It's a barrage of, among other things, positive reviews, negative reviews, good vibes from a contact made, bad vibes, anger and irritation and satisfaction and fondness originating from a hundred or a thousand glimpsed or participated in electronic conversations. Taken separately, it's harmlessly and harmless enough, but all bundled together, it equates to thousands of received ideas trying to get into your skull. I'm clearly not the only writer to think about such issues in relation to creativity and career. Um, when I wrote about white and dark noise on my blog, my good friends Dan Reed and Tessa Cum, both writers who often move effortlessly through new media, shared some interesting and extremely sobering thoughts on the subject. Dan sees dark noise as coming from everywhere, and it has an element of randomness to it, whereas white noise comes from channels that you open or allow to be opened. His theory is worth quoting at length, and I'm sure that he got it from somewhere else, but it's still interesting. I have experienced an overload of what you call dark noise. It was followed by a depression, actually. Instead of the dark noise metaphor, though, I've thought of it as having an, a finite ability to handle a limited number of open channels. Most of the idea of a channel centers around a communication medium. A blog one writes, a site where one participates in comment threads regularly, an email account, each conversation is a subchannel, a collaboration on a project. But a channel could be any relationship, really, though I think particularly an online one, because the other side of the channel um, is not feeding back into you directly, if at all. One thing that's tricky is that the channel stays open in your consciousness even when you're not paying attention to it. In fact, the fact that you're not paying attention to it at any given moment creates an additional stress. I've started training myself to be careful of opening new channels. More than once, Dan went over his limit, experienced burnout, and ended up letting some people down by overcommitting and basically disappeared. But Dan's situation isn't unique. Most of us keep too many channels open, resulting in a kind of continual amorphous stress. And relief from that stress may require a general retreat from all open channels. At the very least, it's important for a writer to recognize that too many channels are open before a fuse blows. Because if you push too hard, you run the risk of not just burning out, but finding it hard to regain whatever it is that keeps the imagination continuously putting out ideas and images and stories. It's a particularly astute of Dan to observe that the channel stays open in your consciousness even when you're not paying attention to it. In fact, the fact that you're not paying attention to it may at any, moment, uh, at any given moment create an additional stress, unquote. Even a dormant open channel can become a problem. This is why some people don't just abandon their blogs or Facebook accounts, they actually delete them. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> so just as you may feel that you have to be on at all times when you do a series of presentations or fulfill obligations, you can begin to feel as if you have to be on because you've created an online presence that requires an element of performance and acknowledgement of an audience. 
um, sorry, <laughs> my voice is going. Another challenge as a full-time uh, freelancer for the last few years, I have both more and less freedom. So on the one hand, I'm writing all the time. On the other, I'm writing all the time. So I need to find new and unique ways to recharge and relax. And I rely more and more on what would seem from the outside like a straitjacket of a schedule. But that rigidity allows me to keep going. Because as Dan says, the product of your energy is not just a burst, but rather the result of a, a, a deliberate discipline. Your physical and mental ability to keep up a steady output are also based on your discipline. But when you, what you do requires inspiration as well, not just perspiration. You've got to design things into your process to let the inspiration in while you keep the wheels spinning. <clears throat> in our tightly wound, information-saturated world, we often forget the important things. A lot of writers right now really need to slow down or opt out, and it's often a sign of an underlying sanity. It feels like failure, but it's not actually failure, it's just sanity. For this reason, if you engage heavily with social media for creativity or career, you need to ask yourself a series of questions every couple of months, at least I need to. Am I centered and calm? If not, is there an end in sight? Is that end a true end or a false vision? Am I not just professionally fulfilled, but personally and spiritually fulfilled? Do I love what I'm doing or do I merely tolerate it? Confronting these questions honestly to avoid opting out for the wrong reasons, um, confront these questions honestly to avoid opting out for the wrong reasons, but more importantly, to avoid doing yourself serious harm, possibly even temporary or temporarily or permanently blowing out those circuits that I mentioned. The, um, the other thing about it is uh, too many writers uh, are still thinking tactically, not strategically, about new media. And um, I think there's a real danger about talking about tools. I mean, we talk about Facebook and Twitter, and we talk about all kinds of other social media tools that are coming up. But <coughs> you'll notice that you know, in talking about City of Saints, for example, I was mostly talking about the general details about the blood, sweat, and tears involved in creating the project, rather than specifics about new media. And there are at least five reasons why. The first one's really simple. If you don't focus on creating the content for your book and making your book as good as it could possibly be, no new media strategy will help you in the long term. A lot of so-called experts put way too much emphasis on elements that torque your book life out of balance. Doubly important for writers who don't have a book out. If you don't have a book out and that's your goal, make sure that all of your new media efforts are supporting and enriching your work and aren't more about telling the world that you're a writer. Nothing is more corrosive to a writer than living a writer's life for public consumption and not actually getting much writing done, or only getting writing done that's fragmented by a thousand Facebook interruptions. And actually now, I think it's more and more common to see someone <laughs> sitting in a coffee shop and, and you check their Facebook status and they're saying, I'm writing right now, and I'm writing this sentence, and they're commenting, they're making this meta-narrative on the actual work that they're doing, and the work itself is suffering. Reason the second, tools are just tools. New media platforms like Facebook and Twitter are tools. They're not strategies. Just getting on Facebook, creating a blog, is not a strategy or a plan. It's when you mistake the tools for a strategy that you begin to not only become tactical and reactive, but also limited in your thinking because of the limitations of the tools. Further, the tools which help you realize both a creative project and create interest for it are constantly changing. Thus, a focus on the tools is a focus on what will all too soon be the past. And a focus on tools... Thus also means that you're in some ways limiting your options by letting the limitations of the tool and the preconceptions the tool engenders shape your project. I'm going to put this on a bumper sticker someday. Don't let your imagination become a lackey to a new media tool. 
If a tool controls your actions, it to some extent controls your imagination. Reason the third. When we do engage tools in a creative way or use them to express creativity, many times we can't predict the results and shouldn't even try to. The most lucrative post I ever wrote for my personal blog was a discussion between me and my wife about which imaginary animals might be kosher and which might not be kosher. <laughs> that post not only led to a discussion on Swedish public national radio and on a slew of high-profile Jewish websites, but also in a book deal for the Kosher Guide to Imaginary Animals, which will be out next year, and which uh, also includes a uh, discussion with um, Duff Goldman from Ace of Cakes about um, recipes for imaginary animals, and things like uh, him thinking the taste of evil is like the bitter inside of a walnut. So look for that. In another example, I had a dream about capybaras, <coughs> in which uh, these capybara generals from an alternate universe had captured me so that I could give them all the secrets of uh, Earth's military strengths so they could use it against other capybaras. It was very strange. Um, <coughs> and capybara, you all know the capybara is a 140-pound South American rodent, I'm assuming. Um, so, <laughs> sure, why not, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, so after this, I actually blogged about it, and a certain Kaplan Roos uh, claiming to be a capybara posted a comment. It was, of course, the owner of a capybara who lived in Texas. And I wound up interviewing Kaplan Roos for my blog. And not only did the details about capybaras, like the fact that they make a sound like a Geiger counter when happy, uh, wind up going into a short story, but the interview was so popular that over 80,000 people read it, some of whom, according to site stats, now regularly visit my blog, and some, set, some, set, some subset of them I know have actually picked up my books. And others may contribute to my creative life or career in ways that I can't anticipate today. Now, because this is being recorded, and I think it's hilarious that this is going to be on an MIT podcast, I should note uh, that there's also a large Twitter community of guinea pig owners twittering as if they are their guinea pigs, and that they post messages in awe of the capybara, Kaplan Ross, as if he is their god. Um, so if you want to explore a really bizarre online subculture, go for it. Now, now, why did I post an interview about a 140-pound rodent that makes it sound like a Geiger counter when it's happy? It, was it part of a larger strategy? Did it fit into my personal mission statement or my short-term or long-term goals? No, I did it because I thought it would be fun, because it appealed to my sense of imagination. But the question does speak to something that writers seem to have lost sight of in the quest to gain leverage to the new wild west of uh, new media platforms. That again, having fun, expressing creativity is sometimes the best way to advance your career. And this isn't to say that writers shouldn't have uh, clear strategic plans for their careers and book promotion, but that a lovely element of chance comes into play when you just do what comes naturally. It's also a great relief to relax into a situation instead of again trying to be on all the time. Your potential readers respond positively, often joyfully, to what amount to displays of calm and confidence. Reason the fourth about the danger of talking about tools. Tools are only so useful as your ability to leverage them for visibility as a writer, if you want to look at it in a cold and calculating way. And each person's entry point to leverage is different. In today's world, there are at least two stories, the story of who you are as a person, what is known about you publicly on the internet, and the story of your writing. These are the elements you use to get attention for your fiction. Sometimes one story is more potent than the other, whether that's fair or not. In terms of public fascination, some people's writing never catches up to their life story. Some life stories will never be as compelling as the writing. New media doesn't care which is which, though, although you should. Each of you has a different story, a different type of creativity, a different inert visibility in the marketplace of ideas. 
Inert visibility is your visibility if from this day forward you never blogged, twittered, or posted another Facebook status. What would your visibility be? In my case, my books would then become the sole vehicle for my story and my leverage. My point is that, of course, what works for someone like Cory Doctorow won't work for you, not on a strategic level. On a tactical level, you can piece together your own plan by taking bits and pieces from what works for others, but simple imitation does not cut it. Reason the fifth, the past is prelude to the future. There's no doubt that we are heading towards, maybe already are in, a paradigm where more and more writers are involved in creating a book, no matter what form a book takes. And we all know this because we've seen like Will Wheaton do it through Lulu. <laughs> but it may be a while before a new writer can be assured of getting enough opportunities through self-publishing to find and hold an audience large enough for it to be economically viable. Although I still think we're going to see that in the next uh, 10 years or so. So in this context, my experimentation with a book like City of Saints and some of the other books I've done isn't just about the use of emerging new technologies to create a traditional book. It's also an indication of the future. As I've said, thinking about the book as a continually mutable object, <coughs> uh, as an exchange of ideas, the book is a container for storytelling that migrates and cross-pollinates across the electronic and physical worlds um, that isn't bound by either the term internet or the term physical book is very important. Low-tech solutions, traditional storytelling will be as infiltrated by the ideas of social media and new media as the other way around. It's a two-way conversation. <clears throat> as the role of the writer expands into being intimately involved in the creation of the book, the end result is a blurring of the lines between perfection of content and acquisition of a platform and or perfection of the aesthetic. POD influenced not just the production of City of Saints, it arguably influenced the actual content because content and look and feel were related and that influence was then codified in the non-POD editions. At the other end of the process, the growing role of the writer in gaining accessibility and visibility for the book will lead to a blurring of the lines between what we think of as promotion and what we think of as creativity. This will be a good thing for a writer's creativity so long as these secondary projects don't become the main focus. In short, my experience with City of Saints sends the horrible bits may become more of the norm for writers. My involvement in all aspects was in part required and in part due to working with an indie press that had limited resources. But it points toward a future where, as we all know, writers will become publishers, editors, production supervisors, design coordinators, marketers, and publicists if they don't shoot themselves first. <clears throat> this represents an extraordinary opportunity for control and the possibility of significant time sink on the other. How balanced you can be in your book life, how organized, will largely determine how well you can take advantage of these emerging paradigms, if you want to take advantage of them. One thing that we're actually losing is the, uh, the kind of isolated curmudgeon. <laughs> Some of my favorite writers would have absolutely nothing to do with the internet, if they could possibly get away with it. And I guess my fear is that there's a lot of writers who will just simply become invisible, unless they have very strong patrons in the form of large publishers. Whereas the fact is, though, that most of these types of writers are not going to have those kinds of patrons. Um, so it really kind of bothers me a little bit um, that we actually have to engage in this stuff in, um, in any kind of way. Now, because of book life, people are always asking me what they can do to be successful in this uh, current and volatile environment. And most of what I've communicated tonight has to do with telling you about the priorities in my creative life, in a way how I came to write a book like Book Life, which strives to reaffirm that hard work, integrity of vision, and execution will always be important, no matter what seems flashy in the current moment. And in that context, I think there are a few points that are important. Again, fun and creativity feed into your career with regard to new media, especially because it is often difficult to quantify results. 
thinking about the strictly functional aspects of an action or the easily quantifiable benefits of an action are kind of um, limiting in terms of that. Your public and private personas shouldn't be too different, which is just to say, uh, which is to say just because I indicate you have a public persona doesn't mean you should exploit it in a calculated way. Most successful writers in the future will be the ones who stop responding in Pavlovian fashion to our current need for that little food pellet in the form of a response to a blog entry, Twitter line, or Facebook status message. Try to multitask in ways that allow your career or public book life to support and even feed your private creativity. Understand that book sales are only one component of a successful career and that your interaction with social media and the internet should focus on broader issues like your personal brand over time and your personal integrity. Allowing yourself no personal space because of overuse of social media will ultimately affect the quality of your writing and the balance of your life. I think another thing that comes up is a lot of people are using what you'd normally use as a fodder for your fiction as live journal entries. And so you get to a point where you're telling the stories that you would have originally put in fiction as, as basically uh, an extended memoir over uh, you know, many, many months or years, and you kind of lose the impetus to put that in your fiction. And of course, always think on a strategic level when engaging new media or any aspect of your career or creativity. Uh, these are the, the issues that I think most fiction writers are dealing with and nonfiction writers as well. Um, but also the only true answer, the only answers that matters is personal to you. What satisfies you, what energizes you, what excites you. Posting about giant rodents made me very happy. <laughs> it also gained me readers. To operate from some other place or out of reaction to the current always changing paradigm is to in a sense lose yourself. So always opt out in favor of your private book life. That's basically my advice. And I think I'm done because my voice is fading. I'm very sorry. I won't last through the discussion. Thank you. <clears throat> so how do you want to do the discussion? Just have two chairs up here or? <clears throat> Yeah, no okay. I, I, do you want to do it as like a straight interrogation? Is there a uh, bulb somewhere we can use to uh, light I it? I think uh, our host <laughs> would like me to speak for about five minutes. Okay, great. Then I will just sit in the back here. So I will do that, uh, and then I will move the podium out of the way, and uh, Jeff and I will continue on and continue the conversation. Right. Can everybody hear me? Just for recording? Okay, great. So, a little bit about me. Uh, hello, nice to meet you all. My name is Kevin Smokler. I am the CEO of Booktour.com and the co-founder of the company, along with Chris Anderson, who may be a name you're familiar with, editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, the author of The Long Tale and Free. Um, that's my day job. Uh, I am faced with many of the questions that Jeff has raised in the presentation over and over again, not only from our customers, but from our direction as a company. Uh, what do we plan on? Uh, our ostensible mission is to make sure that people have all of the information about when authors are going to be appearing in, the, in their town. That's our core product. Beyond that, it leads to all sorts of interesting philosophical and cultural questions on what is a live event? What is the experience someone wants to have with an author? What is that experience actually about? Is it about the personal communion between author and reader? Is it about the book as intermediary? A publisher for most of their career has had a relationship with a retailer, has not had a relationship with a reader. And the idea of sending an author on a book tour for most of its history has been about making nice with people who sell books. 
was we all know, or, as we, or as maybe, we, maybe we've all heard, Borders Books is teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. Independent bookstores are closing rapidly. People, statistics say about 20% of the retail outlets for books in this country will be gone in five years. So the relationship that publishers have with whom their customer is, the people who make books and who the customer is, as a long time has kind of stopped in the middle of that chain. The chain has stopped at the retailer. Well now, drop the middle out of that and all of a sudden the entire relationship has changed. The end customer is now the important customer and in many ways is the only customer. And of course that has something to do with Amazon and direct sales and things like that. So, that and many of the issues Jeff has raised are some of the things we'll be talking about. I'll just give you a little bit about me and how I got here, which I think will provide some of the context for the Q&A. Mm -hmm. um, I was born in August of 1973, which makes me 36 years old. And two things happened in the week I was born, albeit seven years apart, that I think define a lot of who I am and how I got here. One, on my first birthday, a man named Philippe Petit walked between two wires across the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. Now. Many of you have seen the movie Man on a Wire. Maybe you've read his autobiography. He did this, and he contacted no one. He did not speak to anyone. He did not call the newspapers. He did not call the radio stations. He merely committed a crime, which is what it was, did this thing, and as you've seen from perhaps the movie, he did it in peace and serenity. There's a wonderful part in that movie where Philippe Petit says he stopped in the middle of the wire as the cops were on this end about to arrest him, and he stopped and he just smiled at them, and he walked back in the middle of the wire. Um, and the other thing that happened seven years apart, not, uh, uh, five days before my birthday, was the birth of MTV, which happened on August 1st, 1981. Uh, why do those two, th for some reason, those two things have always been connected in my head. I'm not sure why, but I look at the walking on the wire and I say, there is a moment that existed solely for someone's personal satisfaction that became a media moment that made that person famous, but the end result was not just that person being famous, but was making a building famous. Making an inanimate object that was largely considered folly when it was built, substantial, worthwhile, and culturally relevant. And the birth of MTV, I look at, how is this connected to Philippe? I don't know, but I look at, and I say the birth of MTV was one of the first examples of my own generation taking two seemingly disparate or uncomfortably coexisting media at the time and insisting they go together. Insisting they go together from the very beginning. They sort of engineered their own DNA by, say, by the first video on MTV being Video Killed the Radio Star, which was by a group that was completely constructed to make that video to appear on MTV. So artificially constructed into the DNA from the very beginning and, and doing so in a way that resulted in identifying an audience for culture that had not been identified at that point. The market for popular music was largely seen in big trouble at that point. It was largely seen as massively divided thanks to the splitting of musical genres in the 1970s. And what MTV did was unify in a, in a sort of generational hurrah the market for popular music. So it identified a consumer, by ma a unique consumer by mashing two kinds of media together and insisting that they belong together all along. For some reason I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating because it calls into all, all of these questions that Jeff has referred to. What is the relationship between creator 
an audience? Does it create some sort of mutant third out of those things? Where does the creative artifact exist? Is it in the middle of those relationships? But it seems to be constantly shifting to the left and to the right and to the sides of those relationships. I feel like being a member of that generation, it made me part of the largest explosion of availability of media and culture in human history. Starting with cable TV in the late 1970s, starting with the early video games, home video, and the explosion of the internet in my late adolescence. I'm sure many of you are that age, and many of you recall fondly, or perhaps just bemusingly, this time in life when media became something that you actually had to go and seek out to something that just came to you first in dribs and drabs, and later in great fire hoses and tidal waves. And what kind of responsibility it entailed to be a cultural consumer and how that would later, if you cho chose, how would that em would empower you as a cultural creator. Flash forward, I'm 23 years old. It is the first dot-com wave, and I love books, and I love to read, and I find that Generally, people who are like me are afraid of this thing called technology, but I was born with it. I was born at exactly its uptick. And I say to myself, I love to read. I love books. Is there something that we can do with these new tools to make the creation of books, the consumption of books, the community we can create around books and the written word more palatable, more real? The book, to me as a writer, seemed the great endurance test of writing. It is the most tangible artifact you can have of something you have written. But I am also a social person. I am an extroverted person. And like one of my writing heroes, Graham Greene, I always felt that meant I was in the wrong profession because I did not have the personality that these people have. Graham Greene would write 500 words in a morning and then go on about his business. And when they'd say, why aren't you writing more? He'd say, I already done it and I have living to do. <laughs> he had writing confined to this very defined piece of his life because he thought it was his calling, but it was a calling that was inconsistent with who he was as a person. Something I have always felt in my own tension as a writer and someone who loved books and loved bookish people. And this would lead me to a question like, how do you read extrovertedly? Other than Bloomsbury Day or in houses of worship, reading is by nature a private activity. However, the celebration of it, the debriefing, the tussling with the text, the what does a book compel us to do as people, ideas, changes in fashion, visiting strange places, these are public activities. And they are public activities that increasingly, as Jeff has pointed out, exist not only between the writer and the text, but between the, writer, the, uh, between the reader and the text, but between the reader, the text, and the writer himself or herself. What this led me to are questions that continue to fascinate me and I hope we'll bring out in our Q&A. The relationship between public and private creativity, between creator and created object, between audience, and the very real question I'm sure we're all faced with, not only as people interested in text, but interested in simple human creativity and culture, time. How does this play? How do we find room for the things you're talking about, mm -hmm. that we're talking about? How do we change our personal agendas as cultural consumers. I really feel like, Jeff and I were talking about this earlier, I really feel like, given my profession, this is very odd, but I never need another book recommendation ever again, ever, in the rest of my life. Because my bookshelf of 300 waiting titles tells me I don't have time for them. Whatever I get will be number 301, and I'll never get to 301. 
So my question is, do we feel tapped out as cultural consumers? Do we feel like we do not have time for more, and yet there are continuous demands for more and for better and for more creative and for different ways of engagement? How do we stay citizens of the modern cultural day and yet also disciplined folks who are interested in our own cultural educations? How do we reconcile the past with this ever-demanding present and future? Um, I wrote a book about some of these issues. It's called Bookmark Now, Writing in Unreaderly Times. It came out in 2005. Now in my current capacity, I'm answering some of these questions about what is the nature of a live event with an author? How do we respond to the changing nature of a live event? When it becomes virtual, when it becomes asynchronous, when it becomes something perhaps not even necessary? And I think the comment Jeff used with this meta-universe of book tours, that an author event is now something portable that can be picked up and it can be recorded and it can be listened to out of time. These are all really fascinating questions. And obviously, I can pace around and talk about them for a while. But I, I'm really here to talk about them with Jeff. So uh, that's my little introduction to who I am. I thank you for listening. And uh, Jeff and I will have a, uh, a more substantive chat. You want to pull up another chair, or how do you want to do this? Um, I'm going to do the laptop. So. Oh, OK. So let's just put the two chairs right here. OK. <laughs> so can we start with that? <laughs> I don't know why I come back to this. Yeah. I think I'm at that period in life where I always come back to this issue of time, where yeah. I'm suddenly in charge of a company. I'm newly married. I, um, I'm not as young as I used to be. And, um, and I, you know, when people, when people say, oh, there's all these new exciting things yeah. happening in the world of formerly simply textual culture, I, I, I tell an old joke my father used to tell, which is what he would answer when, when my mother would ask, would say, Irving, can you do the laundry? And he would say, I'll do it in my spare time, which meant I'll do it never and I'm not interested. Um, <laughs> so how do we reconcile these questions yeah. of time? How do, how, do, how do we as creators not constantly feel like we're intruding mm -hmm. on the already overwhelming lives of our audiences? Well, I think, um, I, think I mean, there's one, one answer to that. I mean, I, I, in the book, I talk about trying to have this balance between your personal and your, your private life and trying to multitask in ways that are more creative. Uh, for example, you know, I do a lot of uh, book reviews and whatnot. And for Finch, I actually uh, reviewed for Publishers Weekly for, for seven years, which had a lot of benefits to my career but also benefits creatively because I, I insisted on getting only mystery novels and Finch is a mystery that has noir tropes and so the idea was by the time I came to write it I would have all that internalized. So that was one way of doing research for something creative but, but, a, but, but in a time management sense getting something public out of it, get, getting something that was helpful to my career that, that was also bringing in money. Um, and I, I also, as we were talking about, uh, I, I, I reviewed these, uh, these uh, Penguin Great Idea books, specifically because I wanted to have different narrative strategies when I did um, book life. So that, again, was something that fed into, kind of was, was serving a dual purpose. So I think that's one thing you're getting at, but you're also talking about audience. And in what sense are you meaning that, though? Do we... Um I guess this leads pretty well into my second question. Often one of the criticisms yeah. that is brought up in reference to Cory Doctorow mm -hmm. is 
before Cory Doctorow decided mm. to engage in these mm. in these fantastic right. experiments with publishing, and mm -hmm. he had a sizable audience. Well, yeah, that, oh. yeah, th that's an interesting question because um, uh, I think it's. It, it, Cory Doctor is uh, actually uh, he's a good friend of mine. I've gone to writers' workshops with him and whatnot, and and, and we kind of grew up together through 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 uh, various same channels. But um, it, th there's this thing where, for one, because he has Boing Boing, he doesn't really know all that much about PR, because he used Boing Boing as as his PR. Um, but there is this thing where this brilliant thing he did, where where he 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 created this situation where. The, the, the appearance of the reality became the reality. And, and so he is now a best-selling author. He, he does have a sizable audience to some degree. The, the question you have to ask yourself is how much is, is enough? Because I think people think that his persona or his, his, his public persona is out of whack with his actual book sales. But in actual fact, I think he's right where he would be anyway with regard to his book sales. What, what he's doing is he's, he's actually leveraging a long-term brand. He's kind of creating a, a, a paradigm in which, which uh, you know, he's kind of more or less ubiquitous across a certain spectrum of, 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 the, of the landscape. And uh, you're right, not everybody can do that. But I, I, I say, I say in, in one talk I give that it's like criticizing someone for having a longer shadow than you. Mm. It just, it's just simply that was his career path. And it may not be duped. Be, you may not be able to duplicate it entirely, but but I think it um, but I think it, it it was a very interesting approach. Uh, when I when I said criticism, I didn't mean levied yeah. against Corey. Right, or right. I, I, Though I, he has been, I mean, he addressed this recently. That's why I thought that. So. Right, right. No, what I meant is is the the logic behind mm. using that as an example yeah. that the average author who has not reached the heights of Corey <coughs> can right. apply. Uh, because because Corey minus Boing Boing mm -hmm. is probably a well-respected science fiction author yeah. who speaks well yeah. on behalf of his own books, but is not Cory Doctorow. And yet, at the same time, he built Boing Boing. So I mean, it's it's kind of they're kind of inseparable in a way. I mean, he actually created something there. Sure. The um, the thing I find interesting, like with his new experiment with Publishers Weekly, is um, there's a, there's like a counterpoint. Michael Stackpole is this writer who basically took the piss out of Corey on his blog, like pointing out all the ways in which Corey's experiment with his self-publishing book is is not legitimate as an experiment that you can reproduce, which I think is kind of beside the point because what Corey is really doing there is he's releasing this book in several different ways. And that's the part of it that I find interesting. Those are the bits and pieces that you can actually replicate or you can kind of put together as kind of a toolkit for your own approach. And then you can read the Michael Stackpole rebuttal and you can get the nuts and bolts of here are the ways in which it would, you could perhaps create an actual experiment that would work that would be a business model that a lot of people could use. So I think that they're kind of flip sides of the same coin. They're both right in a way. And so I think Corey is very much right in the way he does things because of the fact that, that there's, this, there's this thing about the Internet that it, there is, like you were talking about how sometimes an event doesn't even need to occur in a way. There is a smoke and mirrors aspect to it, but it, is, it has its own reality. Uh, that's, it's kind of frightening, and it, it, it seems like it can be manipulative, but, it, but it's also there's a truth to it. It's, it's kind of a, a weird bit of storytelling. That uh, yeah, so it's the the Jarvis example. Do you know the Jar the assistant Jarvis example that the yeah. author Colson Whitehead used? No. 
Colson Whitehead created a, a Twitter account for oh. an, a man named assist, uh, his yeah. assistant Jarvis, who did not exist. Right. And Jarvis <laughs> committed all sorts of of atrocities, yeah. personal and creative, against his boss Colson Whitehead. Yeah. And yeah. probably had a good four or five hundred oh, followers yeah. just on the as assistant Jarvis yeah. Twitter feed. And then Colson Whitehead yeah. killed him. I mean, had himself as Colson Whitehead killing his assistant, yeah. who didn't really exist, and 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 uh, yeah. and, 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 so, and I, I I don't think it yeah. went to this extent, but somewhat he had people yeah. saying, "I'm going to call the police. How dare you do yeah. this? You know, you murderer, you." Uh, yeah, but um, I mean, yeah, and, and that's actually, I mean, that's as old as the hills because, like Nabokov would, when he was a, a an immigrant in uh, or, or a refugee uh, refugee in Berlin would uh, or or Paris, can't remember which one. Uh, he would take advantage of all these these little journals by posting poetry under a different name and then attacking himself in a different forum. Absolutely. And it, it would be what I would call like a long trap version of this because, of course, we didn't have the internet then, so it couldn't take place over a period of days. It had to take place over a period of years. But it's the same kind of thing. And it's weird because, in a way, it was a way to eventually kind of puff up his reputation, but it was also a very extremely interesting kind of fragmented way of storytelling, mm -hmm. both things at the same time. Yeah, so. if, if P.T. Barnum had a novelist yeah. aspiration, aspiration right. would have been that. <laughs> yeah. um, but it does, it does raise the question that always troubles me, and maybe I'm just yeah. traditional in this respect, yeah. which is that any, any form of culture or any creative yeah. person, to make, the kind of, to make the kind of efforts you're taught, you're, you discuss yeah. in your presentation, and even have them be yeah. remotely interesting to people, yeah. at some point has to cultivate an an initial base of loyalists who mm. will participate in these experiments. You can't, yeah. you can't, you can't, you have to, yeah. you can't start from, you know, from, from a dead stop. <coughs> so, and what it comes, and, and, and I think what, what, what an aspiring writer comes back to mm. is, how do I get myself walking before I'm running? And, yeah, and, and I, that's I, just the simple act of writing. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I almost never have a good answer for that, yeah. because, because that answer, despite yeah. all of the fancy tools at our disposal, yeah. is, is an old-fashioned one, yeah. it seems to be. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't have the same kind of uh, following as like a Neil Gaiman or anything like that, but I do have a core band of people who are relatively, you know, zealots about it and uh, allow me to do a lot of, to, to actually have, I guess you'd have to call it the privilege or the luxury of engaging in some of this stuff. It's absolutely true. I mean, you know, like for example, for Finch, we did a whole series of online posters that were like uh, basically this one political faction asking for the heads of another and you could Photoshop your own face into it. And to be absolutely honest, uh, you know, I have no idea if it's going to help sell the book. <laughs> I have the luxury of having enough of an audience that I can do any kind of thing like that I want to, and there'll be people who promulgate it and, and, and do that. But if I was just starting out, I don't know if that would be an effective strategy at all because it's not tied so, that directly to the, to the book, uh, book sales. Um, but again, I, th I, th I, th you know, I, th I do think that there's a possibility that we will have kind of another brand of fiction writer come up who that's what they do. I mean, you, you've seen it even with like people like Daniel Lewski on his website when he was doing House of Leaves and things like that. I mean, that's a kind of crude example, but, but I could definitely see, I was thinking about this more and more, somebody who, that was their art form. And you wouldn't really call it fiction, but it kind of is. Um, they'd be kind of a performance artist on the internet, but, um, but they wouldn't, uh, you know, be kind of a hybrid. Um, and that, that's something that might come out of this thing that we're talking about, which is kind of more of a crude kind of physical reaction rather than a chemical one that, that, that might be interesting. Um, of course, in 70 years, we won't have an internet because we won't have electricity, but you know, in the interim, we can all explore this. Hopefully, we will still have the sun. Um, two questions, and then I think we want to open it up to the yeah. audience. Um, one, how long is a piece of culture in play? 
and by that I mean, are, are, we, are we slowly but inexorably getting towards the point where every author is on a continuous book tour? And, and, the, po- and the positive example of that is sort of the, the positive example or the, the, the sort of yeah. real but, but yeah. largely harmless example question. of that is, is what politicians call the continuous campaign. Yeah. And yeah. The, harmless exa- the harmful yeah. example of that is what, we, yeah. is, 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 is what we call the continuous war. Right. That um, right. that it sort of it sort of moves away from being what it is and becomes and takes on yeah. a whole other reality. There's, there's there's two things about that. It's hard for me to answer the question on one hand because I've had like 14 books out in the last four years, so I have been in a continuous campaign. But it's mm-hmm. because I've had 14 books out. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I think there is a certain addiction to that part of the writer's lifestyle because it is that part where you get to meet people, where people are telling you, flattering you about how they liked your books and all that kind of crap, and and so. So, so, you know, and, and that's just simply exacerbated by the fact we have this immediacy through social media. And so I do think that there are, there, there are writers who are doing this continual campaign thing, and, uh, and, and I do think it is a, a definite danger. The, it, it's, just, it's, uh, it's a continual process of resetting. I mean, after this book tour, actually, I'm resetting. I'm literally taking a month where I'm nowhere near the Internet. And I hope to reset to the point where I don't get back on and I'm not in a continual campaign. Because that's my biggest fear is that I will get to this point where everything will become irrelevant <laughs> besides all the, the meta stuff. And at that point, I think you may as well just walk off a cliff. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of insane. On the, on the other hand, I do a lot of these things because my fiction is relatively weird. To get the same numbers as a regular, as a normal mid-list writer, I usually feel like, at least, I have to put in twice as much effort. And so that's also how you get to a point where you can you might get to a, a point where you're you're doing a continual campaign as well. Would the folks in the audience like my last question to be uh, hard nosed and businessy, or uh, or squishy spiritual Northern California? <laughs> All for hard nosed. <laughs> All for squishy. So he, he, he's putting the responsibility on you for giving me an interrogative question. Okay, I'm going to ask the hard-nosed question, and if someone is curious about the squishy question, that can be their question when, when I pass the mic to the audience. Um, what was the squishy question? Um, the hard-nosed and business question is, if we are, if we are submitting, at least to some extent, yeah. that, a, that a book is actually in play and culturally relevant yeah. for a lot longer than the traditional publishing yeah. cycle would tell us it is, yeah. does that mean, or how does that mean, that a, bi- a publisher or someone who is in the business of mm-hmm. producing culture, to me, seems to, have, seems to now need to have an almost backwards kind of accounting system whereby nothing ever really mm. goes on the shelf and once it does you have to be able to you have to be able to keep your eye on on the zeitgeist and say okay now it's time to bring this mm-hmm. back into cultural relevance so the, so yep. you have to have sort of sensors attached to the things on the shelf saying this is a book about this is a book about you know balloons and then mm-hmm. a kid flies over colorado in a homemade right. balloon and yeah no i mean that 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 uh, the idea of it being topical and coming back i think is is actually something publicists have thought about for a long time, but but what you are seeing is you are seeing more and more publicists drill down into subcultures on the internet, and part of that is because they realize now that the life of a book, in terms of getting that attention you're talking about in the in the in the, in the popular culture, can have two or three incarnations at the very least. So you'll see them basically approaching and uh, the gatekeepers for the core 
audience for the book, but then you'll also see them coming back later and, and finding other subcultures, other communities on the internet, other ways of approaching it all along down the line in a way that they couldn't before because it's so easy to disseminate information across the internet now and get something going virally. Um, so yeah, that, that's just that's part of it. So book campaigns are becoming longer. I don't know how to what extent the authors are then participating though, um, but definitely the publishers are engaging at that level if they're smart. And I think indie presses are doing this more than large publishers just because they have to, because they have to try to keep 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 the numbers going because they're doing smaller print runs to begin with and they're trying to bump their numbers up. Which would seem to involve a kind of continual harvest in the back fields. You know, you yeah. Something yeah. six months later. You can't be continually pressing forward with yeah. what, you're, what you're creating. You have to kind of keep yeah. doing this. Right. And, and, and that, um, I mean, depends on what kind of creator you are. Like on the Kosher Guide to Imaginary Animals, there's going to be three or four different pushes. And my wife, who, who is my co-author on it, is going to do all of that. And she doesn't have any other books out. So for her, you know, and it's this fun little book, that's totally harmless. Um, but if I were to do that across two or three different books, um, it would begin to become corrosive. Um, and that's why I said what I did about, about the idea of kind of like the writers who tune out more, who, who are not online 24-7, who are able to control their obsession or their, their addiction, more or less, because we all have some form of addiction to the internet, a lot of us do at least, um, are the ones that will be the most successful because they're going to be able to take the long view a lot easier than the ones who get so enmeshed in it that they are in that continual cycle, um, even though it's very, very you know, persuasive. I think we're ready for some questions from the audience. Uh, what do people want to know? And if the answer is nothing, I will find someone and call on them. So. We need to, yep. Um, let me first say that I'm a big fan, oh, um, or a new fan, was uh -huh. recently introduced by my girlfriend to um, Ambergris. Um, <laughs> my question is about reader experiences. Yeah. Um, and specifically about mediated experiences. Yeah. We are at MIT, and a number of the people here have been um, viewing this talk through the medium of you know, having their smartphone, taking pictures, mm -hmm. having their laptop out to take notes. I yeah. myself have a camera in my pocket, and sort of the only reason that I haven't mm -hmm. pulled it out is I didn't mm -hmm. want to videotape you and then wait until I got home later to find out whether or not I had enjoyed the talk. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> no, that's perfectly legitimate, I think. <laughs> and, and there are a lot of people who enshrine reading books as one of the last great unmediated experiences. Mm -hmm. It's just the reader and the book. Mm -hmm. Although even that is becoming less true. Um, I have a number of friends who live blogged the reading of Harry Potter 7. Right. That was sort of a cultural watershed moment, but it, it, yeah. you know, they posted page numbers and said, oh, I, this just happened yeah, in yeah. my experience. So they created that sort of meta-narrative. Um, and so I was wondering what your thoughts are about um, how that is going to evolve, um, how as life, daily life, becomes mm -hmm. more and more mediated mm -hmm. as we view it more and more through technology, as the internet sort of becomes mm -hmm. more pervasive, um, how the experience of sitting down mm -hmm. and reading a book or a, a, you know, a physical book is, um, is going to change and whether that mm -hmm. is something that is increasingly, you think, going to become one of the mediated, mediated experiences or whether in a certain sense it will retain its purity. Well, to be on absolutely honest, I, I hope we reach a point of oversaturation on this where we begin to pull back from that. Uh, because the point shouldn't be to simply have everything be mediated in that way. I mean, the, the point should be that we have these different experiences that have a different context and that we, we preserve because, because they're important, because they give us a different depth than the other things. I mean, I don't actually like the idea of having all this other information sometimes because I feel like I'm being dictated to. I feel like I'm being lectured more or less. I don't like online annotations of books and whatnot. I want to come to them fresh. 
And uh, so my response is kind of the Luddite response, actually, that, 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 that I don't want to engage in that way. And, uh, and that I hope that we do preserve this kind of space. And, uh, and I think, again, that those who do will be gaining something because literally our brains are being rewired by this stuff. And those people who don't let their brains be rewired will actually have an advantage over time. So. Hi, am I supposed to introduce myself? Uh, okay, usually we do. <laughs> I'm, I'm Flourish Clink, and I'm a graduate student mm -hmm. here at MIT in the Comparative Media Studies program, yeah. um, which of course got my hackles up when you said that reading a book is not a mediated experience, because I was immediately thinking, of course, well, of course it's it mediated. Yeah, sure, sure, what sure. is a book, you know? Well, remember, I'm a curmudgeon, and, and I'm looking at it from a writer's you know, perspective. That's, I hate to be, normally I'm not the biggest yeah. curmudgeon in a room, yeah. but hey, there we go. Um, <laughs> actually, my question to you was, yeah. I'm wondering about how much sort of cross-pollination there is between yeah. the community of, of of, uh, you know, sort of official writerly yeah. types, people who consider that, and, and fan writers, because yeah. when you've been talking about, like, yeah. things that, you know, Mark Z. Danielewski is yeah. going to become a performance artist who's doing this, you know, I've, I've been participating in Harry Potter yeah. fan writing stuff that right. looks an awful lot right. like that for almost 10 years yeah. now. And it's, I mean, I'm not, not to say that it's, like, on the same quality level right. necessarily, nor is it monetizable, yeah. but it's interesting. I wonder how much there could be for, for the sort of mm -hmm. two groups of people to learn from each other? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it depends on, on how you view the writing. I mean, to me, a writer is someone who creates their own unique universe and, and works in it. And somebody who doesn't is still being creative, but it's not the same kind of creativity. I meant purely on the media yeah. level. On the media the level? Yeah. Are, I mean, you know, they're still telling a story. Right, right. right. <laughs> no, I mean, it's fascinating to me. It, it, I think I, I like the way that it changes the dynamic between readers and writers, although I get the sense that most of the people who are writing the stuff see themselves as writers, so I don't know how they see themselves with regard to the main work, right? Because they're actually creating something, you know, that, that, that's subsidiary to this, this main thing that's been created. I mean, I've worked in shared worlds before myself. I mean, I created, I actually followed up a stream of consciousness like a Balkovian thing with a Predator novel, so, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, conti please continue, because again, I'm no, the I, I don't here. want to take this over, I just want yeah, to no, please I do. think they probably see themselves much the same way that Shakespeare saw his, you know, transformative yeah. works, his plays that mm. were very frequently reworkings of previous material. Right, right, but, right. So I think it's a very similar, actually, right. you know, interpretation of, of what their role is as a writer. Yeah, but, I'm probably the wrong person to ask that <laughs> question, because I simply, yeah. that's one point where I, yeah, it, please do. Yeah. Supposed not respect, lack of respect that fan fiction get be our antiquated form of copyright law, which is that which is that if fan fiction was able to be yeah. bundled and put in a book and published, you know, yeah. with a beautiful cover alongside the Harry Potter book, would it be simply seen as additive to the experience as opposed to parasitical to the experience I of think, reading Harry Potter? I think that there's certainly. The yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I don't. I re I'm really. I'm this poor guy here sitting here. You know. I, I think that there is a. I think that you have a good point there. Yeah. I'm not gonna let it stop me from talking though. <laughs> you gave me the power stick. Now I have it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I. I think that. Um, I think that you have a good point there. I also think that it might allow the free market to determine. You know, yeah. a lot of people's complaints is, oh, fan fiction, it's yeah. all stupid, you know, stuff, and it's bad, yeah. and who wants to read that? And I think that if, if you were allowed to do that, we would very quickly see, you know, here well, are some pieces that people are, are really excited to pay for. Yeah. They're really good. Sure. Maybe they are on the level of, you know, a fine no, literary writing. Let me, but, I mean, let me refine yeah. the comment, which is to say I think you can find cool stuff everywhere. I mean, it doesn't matter what the context is. Um, I just think that... Um, to some extent, to complain about 
not getting respect for that is like a commercial novelist complaining about not getting critical respect for something yeah. that is for pop culture consumption, and that's perfectly fine. But it's like you have to know what it is you're doing. And you're either, are you writing something that, that is for the masses, and, and, and that's perfectly fine, and entertainment is great and everything, or are you doing something that isn't? And the response is going to be determined by that. And, and you ultimately have to be doing it because you love doing it, regardless of what the response is, right? I mean, I, I don't know. It just, to me, that seems to be the issue. So. Um. <laughs> hey, I have a question for both of you guys. Yeah. Um, what do you think is more important, and it obviously it could change on the objective of the content, but do you think the overall size of the audience or passion mm -hmm. of the audience and you know, what they do after being inspired by the content? Yeah. Um, that's a very good question. I think it just depends on the individual writer. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Why don't you... Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, no, actually, Kevin, if you want to jump in with that for a second while I think about it. Oh, you want me to go? Yeah, why don't you go Okay. Um, it, 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 it depends on who's asking the question. Yeah. Is it an author asking the question? Yeah. I, 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 had, I reviewed a biography of Nirvana for, uh, for the LA Times a few years ago. And the, que the question I remember thinking about when I read this biography of Nirvana is, Kurt Cobain was only troubled by whether he was an alternative artist or a mainstream, or, or a mainstream artist because those dichotomies mm. were paramount in the culture mm -hmm. in which he lived. Yeah. If Kurt Cobain was born 10 years later, he would have mm -hmm. posted his songs on MySpace and he mm -hmm. would have been very happy mm -hmm. w leaving that question unresolved yeah. because it wouldn't have yeah. even been a question. Yeah. Um, what that tells me is uh, it depends on your aims. Yeah. You know, if your aims if your aims are financial, a larger yeah. audience, of course. If your aims are having you know like-minded people follow your stuff with passion, then. But I, I would yeah. always have I would always have interesting people like what I do rather than rather than lots of people having a shallow relationship with what yeah. I do. That said. Uh, I have, you know, I have 2,500 followers on Twitter. I don't know most of them. I would rather have that than 15. I do know. Yeah, I mean, I think the terms of so success... So there's some sort of midpoint yeah. in there, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. I think the terms of success are so different for every, every writer. I mean, I think that there's this perception out there that every writer wants to be a New York Times bestseller, but that's not necessarily the best business model or approach for every writer. And so... You know, if, if you're if you're your normal mid-list writer, having that passionate group that really believes in the stuff, they're really effective advocates for getting you a larger audience. And at that point, what you're really looking for is for each individual project, asking yourself the question, what do I think the maximum audience is for this book? And then finding ways to, to, to get to that audience, no matter how it is. Uh, and then you have that core group. But, but uh, like for myself, I, every book I write is slightly different. And so... I'm always having to reinvent myself and find a new audience. And so I have this core group that will follow me anywhere. But then I also know that with each project, I lose some of them and I gain some new ones. And that'll the continual, continual process of shedding and gaining <laughs> pounds. No, um, fans, you know. So, so um, <laughs> um, rigorous honesty. And, 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 and again, that goes back to like in, in book life, like knowing what you're trying to do with a project. So, you know, I might do a project where there's a 2,000 copies sold. And I'm perfectly happy with that. I'm perfectly happy with getting, you know, a few dozen responses to it. And then another project might be, I expect this to sell 50,000 copies. And if it doesn't, I'm going to be disappointed. And how do I get to that audience? Um, but each, I think either model works. I think the passionate few also works even as a financial model, if they're the right passionate few and if you get the right kind of visibility. 
Hi there. Thank you for speaking with us. Um, I had a question. I was interested in what you were saying about the unpredictability of, of putting content online and taking tools and using them. And I wondered how writers and publishers and marketing teams can use perceptible trends and analytics to actually, in, in your experience, um, to try and take these tools and use yeah. them strategically. And what's the best way for publishers and marketing yeah. teams to try and tell their writers, like, this is the kind of avenue yeah. that you could yeah. use strategically, and this is maybe how much you should use it yeah. and the ways that are good to engage with it? So that's a perfectly rational question that has almost no bearing whatsoever on the way the publishing industry works. <laughs> because as far as I can tell from working with the publishing industry, a lot of publishers' idea of marketing is to basically throw a <laughs> dart at a dartboard and see where it lands. Um, so I think that makes perfect sense, but I think it's totally underused. I mean, I talk in the book about how even for a new author coming on board with a publisher, there's like no documentation about process. The, a lot of publishers, major publishers, don't even know really how they do business. And so that would be a really great way to, to try to begin to measure stuff. And once you begin to measure stuff, you can decide much more easily, oh, is it really stupid of me to give $300,000 to that new author with that book about the pony? Or is it a really good idea? Um, <laughs> right now, it's more like just this kind of like, I have this general feeling, you know, and I know that they do market research. I know they, they do that, but, but I've seen so much evidence as to the failure of the various processes, you know, for book, my books and others and successes, unexpected successes, that, that I know that, that either, either, either they're not using a lot of metrics and they're not using a lot of, of data like that, or, or, or the publishing world and the audiences are so, you know, that, that there's an element of just rolling the dice, so. But, but maybe Kevin can speak more to that, actually, if he's had experience with, uh, with publishers who use that kind of information. All too little of it exists, unfortunately. And the publishing, the, the two misconceptions the publishing industry still operates on are cultural and business mm -hmm. ones. And they both stem from the sort of mid-century heyday of the mm -hmm. publishing industry, which is that, one, every book has innate value and is interesting to someone, which is spiritually true, but if the book falls in the woods and nobody hears it, it doesn't really matter. Um, and, two, uh, and two, readers have oodles of uninterrupted free time to find those books, <laughs> and they don't. I, I don't think anyone in here has that. Um, and, and, this is an, and, and this is an audience of people who are interested yeah. in books and writing and want what publishers are producing. The, the weird thing about the inefficiency, though, is it actually protects some writers who might otherwise be unpublishable who really deserve to be published. So sometimes it has this alternate kind of effect of actually being useful. But, uh, but in general, I would prefer to have a system that was more logical. Yeah, <laughs> as would we all. Thank you. So Jeff, this one is for you specifically. Okay. When you were dealing with the uh, cross-media spin-offs or adaptations of your work, like mm -hmm. the soundtrack or the short films, yeah, yeah. Um, one, how much control over those did yeah. you attempt to exert or were you granted? Mm -hmm. um, and two, how much did you think about what you could do in those media that you couldn't do in print mm. from the get-go? Yeah. Well, the first question is, uh, the answer is, is basically that whenever I enter into a collaboration, whether it's just allowing my work to be interpreted by someone else or being more involved, the idea is to just per see what the other person or, or other group, or in, you know, in the case of a band, what, how much input they actually want and what kind of input is most useful to them in creating something that, that they're going to be aesthetically uh, and artistically pleased with. So I, I, I would say that my involvement is just to that level and no further 
because it's not interesting to me if I'm imposing a kind of control because then basically it's so subservient to what I'm doing that I don't actually learn anything from it. So like when I, I've now collaborated with three different bands, I say collaborated loosely because some of them have asked a lot of questions, some of them have actually shown me the music in progress and some haven't, um, but I'm really interested in their process. I'm really interested in seeing that laid bare because it's so different from the fiction process, but you can then take some of the stuff that you learn from that and, and apply it. Um, and the second part of the, the, the question was, uh, second part was, sorry, see? <laughs> it's not just me. It's, what now? Oh, right. Yeah, well, I mean, there's the immediacy factor. I mean, there, there's the thing that, that, I mean, we were talking earlier about uh, who or what are you envious of. I'm, I'm, I'm envious of musicians because they have this immediate connection with the audience, and I have to build it up through, like, you know, 300 pages of words. <laughs> you know, and a musician can just give you a riff and a few other things, and you can immediately, you immediately get into a mood. And, uh, and so <laughs> that's one thing. And the, the other is just simply that, uh, for example, if you do a short film and you're creating a short screenplay for that, then you are recontextualizing your work in a different context. And every time you do that and have to change it for a different context, you learn something about your fiction. You learn something about how other people perceive it. Um, and, uh, and, and actually, there's this weird thing, too, when, when you're first published through Indie Press and then you're out from a large commercial publisher, you get a totally different view of your audience once you get that many more readers because immediately you're getting so much more feedback. And, 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 and in all of these situations, you begin to think about the room that the reader needs or the viewer or whatever or the listener needs to enter into a, a dialogue with the text in a, in a way that you didn't think about before. And I find that really, really valuable. If that makes sense. I'll do a follow-up question yeah. uh, specifically on that. Um, when you were transitioning from uh, working with Prime and print-on-demand mm -hmm. um, towards the, the more broad release, yeah. it suggests a kind of model that we might embrace now of print-on-demand as mm -hmm. a public beta for a book in some, in some ways. I mean, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about how you see that working and yeah. the trials and tribulations you went through going through that process? Well, I mean, that's actually interesting because I was just at uh, the Amazon offices um, in Seattle and we were talking to one of the people who's involved in a project that they're doing where they're, they're looking at the, uh, the best-selling self-published POD books, basically, and going to those authors and saying, hey, we want to give you an actual re-release through the chains in a physical book form and also editing the thing and, and giving it new covers and everything. So there's this weird thing going on where, where it's exactly that. It's like it's the, the scout team <laughs> and you get pulled up to the majors. Um, I, think, I think that when I was doing the POD thing, there was a total lack of respect for it because the technology was conflated with, with self or vanity publishing. And so the first thing that we had to do when City of Saints came out is we had to basically give everyone a crash course in this is just a way of printing a book. And even then, it didn't quite stick. And so, so one of the frustrations was I was not just out from an indie press. I was also having to, to get out a message about, about the book that, to say, hey, it's not only that it's, it's legitimate, but it's also the way, you know, it's not vanity publishing and all of that. The, um, the, uh, the thing about it is that there's certain books that are only going to ever sell a certain amount you know, that, that, sh that probably will always be in the indie press, and, and POD is a good way of, of, of kind of uh, curtailing the dangers of, of publishing those. But I, I don't know that, that, uh, that, that, that there's really, I mean, I'm not sure if I agree that there's a, there's a, a, a business model there or a, or a kind of progression. 
uh, necessarily, uh, especially now when a lot of traditional presses are using a combination of POD and, and offset depending on who they're selling to. So it's kind of getting muddled a little bit. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you, talk, you were talking about, I think, after Jeffrey brought the, the question, you, you mentioned about the music industry yeah. and, and all that. Do you know Celeband? Mm -hmm. the pro, the, there is a, a portal called Celeband, mm -hmm. which you, you, you put your band there yeah. and the fans help you. They are right, like right, investors. Right, right. Yeah. I was uh, listening to you and how do you see, the, not mm -hmm. the future, but what's your view related mm -hmm. to IP on, on the publishing business mm -hmm. as a writer? Mm -hmm. And uh, what's your view about uh, shared ownership? Yeah. Because since you're giving, we have all that power with the readers. Right. What's the? It's blurred. The boundaries are, are getting more and more blurred. Yeah. How do you see that? Well, um, it's interesting because lately more and more writers, actually, because of the economy, have been have been posting stuff online and taking donations, which is kind of a primitive form of what you're talking about. It's, it gives the reader more ownership over it. Uh, I don't think we're to that point yet where you're seeing as much of that. I think. Um, I think there's some people who've been basically been doing kind of like choose your own adventure stories online where they, the readers get to decide and they put their money behind that and so it determines the course of the text. Um, it's a weird thing for me uh, and I think this might go back to the curmudgeon thing because as a freelancer and writing, you know, working completely off of my writing, there's a certain part of me that doesn't want to do that. That sees that as like an admission of weakness that, 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 that you know, for example, that I should post a story online and take donations for it to me strikes me as charity in a weird way, even though I know that's not really what it is. Um, and several writers have been quite successful with it. I mean, Catherine Valente leveraged it into a book deal uh, recently. Uh, at the same time, when you do that, I do think that a lot of people, you know, the th same thing that you're talking about with regard to Kurt Cobain, a lot of people, at least because the publishing industry isn't in the same mode as the music industry, uh, people begin to, they, they think less of you a little bit. They think, well, you had to do that. You had to take these donations for this thing. And so you lose a little bit of leverage in certain circles. And uh, I think that's changing, but I, I think it's much in a much more primitive state than, than what you're talking about. Um, but then it may be that I just haven't encountered an example uh, that would be relevant. Other questions? Concerns, issues? Uh, Complaints? <laughs> no? Okay. Yeah. The squishy, the squishy question. question. Um, the squishy question was. The squishy question was, um, given the. I, I was going off one of the things you said in your presentation yeah. that the amount of thinking writers now have to do about writing as yeah. opposed to writing just thinking yeah. about actually what they're writing. Um, on the one hand, I can see that as exhausting. On the other hand, it seems to compel creative people to a certain kind mm. of emotional maturity that mm. creative people are typically not known mm -hmm. for. Turn on any television drama, yeah. and whenever you see a writer, that yeah. person is always a complaining, sure. overgrown child. Sure. Um, therefore, yeah. as emotionally and physically taxing as yeah. that might be, isn't it ultimately... One, is it ultimately a good thing for, yeah. for the public image of writers mm -hmm. and for the emotional health of writers themselves? And two, <laughs> that's all well and good, but doesn't that take away from the, from the aura of glamour we typically <laughs> see around creative people? 
Well, I think for the public persona, I think a lot of readers do kind of buy into that false romanticism of an image. I mean, I know that there are some readers of my fiction, especially the early work like Venice Underground, which is somewhat gothic, who are very disappointed that I don't wear eyeliner and, 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 and well, actually, I'm kind of dressing in black right now, but, but, uh, but you know, have a cape or, you know, kind of engage in the, the goth lifestyle. So, so there is a certain disconnect there for those readers. Um, but I think that, in a, and, and this is one thing that, that occurs in the book, the book life workshops that I do, I, I get them to, writers to, who are disorganized to focus on the most basic thing, which is to set goals, long and short-term goals. And they find the structure very liberating for their disorganized self, because once they have a clear idea of what it is they want to do, then they don't have to worry so much. They don't have to, with the incoming information, continually process it on a kind of tactical level. They immediately know, based on what they want to do, if they stick to it, this opportunity is actually a trap. No, I don't want to do that. This I do want to do. And so it gives you a measure of control that then allows you to be as disorganized and as, as you know, hermit-like as you, as you want to in, in your personal book life. And I think that what I find a lot of is that a lot of writers cultivate in their own brains this idea that they are disorganized. And so they become disorganized. <laughs> and they're actually able to function at a much higher level with regard to those types of things than they think. And uh, so it, it becomes a way of uh, the organization and, and, and kind of you know, getting away from what you're talking about is, is kind of a way of, of not so much growing up as, as just uh, kind of making them reach, realize more of their full potential in that way. But, and I also wanted to just add again, if, if um, those of you who, can, who are staying around, if you could uh, go ahead and sign this for me, it'd be great at some point. So. <laughs> I'm getting superstitious about people not signing it. It'd be bad luck. So. Other questions? Yeah. Over here? Do you have a question? I have sort of a comment on trying to figure out whether I also have a question or whether I just have a comment. That's so meta, it's not even funny. <laughs> <laughs> my my comment is that with like you and and some other writers that I like, I found that certain times there's so much stuff in the edges on the internet and whatever mm -hmm. that like I can't follow it all. And I found that like a couple of years ago, like I had to stop myself from feeling bad that I couldn't like follow everything that a writer was doing online mm -hmm. because it felt like, oh, like I'm missing stuff. Like I'm not a good fan because I don't read mm -hmm. like every blog entry that Neil Gaiman ever mm -hmm. writes every day. Like, you so know. Wait, you're not a good fan of me because you don't read Neil Gaiman's work? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted, I wanted kidding, to sorry. expand <laughs> from you. <laughs> yeah, um, right, so, <laughs> so, um, the, uh, yeah, um, well, don't feel guilty for one thing. I can't keep up with it myself. Um, yeah, that's a good, that's a good uh, comment. Uh, uh, my brain's beginning to fade a little bit. But, yeah, so uh, anyway, so I don't anymore, but I was just thinking yeah. of it as like something I had to train myself yeah. sort of like, so well, it's not really a question, but sort of similarly as well, you have to like learn how to distance yourself or not from certain things. Like I found right. that I had to like adjust the way I, like what my yeah. responsibility was. As a fan. Yeah, and, and on my end, there's a kind of uh, ubiquitousness sometimes that, that drives me crazy, um, but also there's kind of a backlash to it. Like City of Saints, when it came out from Bantam, um, was really got a lot of traction on the internet. And as a result, uh, I actually got a lot of people kind of calling me a commercial sellout, even though it was the same cult classic book uh, that I'd had out before. But there was so much stuff out there that I generated or other people had that suddenly it changed the context of it entirely. And I was quite amused by this idea that I was somehow a commercial author <laughs> all of a sudden with the same book you know, that, 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 that uh, come out from the indies. But yeah, I mean, I, I have the same thing with writers that I follow. I can't, I can't keep up with any of it. 
And I think that not all of it is aimed at the same audience anyway. Um, because that's the other thing writers do and make a mistake of. They keep bombarding the same people with the same information uh, over and over again. Final thoughts. So one of the, the things that you're known for yeah. are the anthologies. Mm -hmm. So you recently edited uh, the New Weird anthology mm -hmm. and you edited the Steampunk anthology. Yeah. Where does editing anthologies fall in your personal writer's mm -hmm. strategy? Um, I don't think that it's a, really that much of a strategy. What it does is it's um, like the fiction is very personal and feels organic, like I'm creating a creature or something or, or some kind of animal and, and you know, need to make, get, make sure it has a liver and all of its other internal organs and not two tails when I'm writing it. But, um, but uh, the anthologies exist as kind of a mathematical equation in my head. It's like here's this interesting problem or this interesting, uh, you know, like movement or something, you know, or lack of movement in the case of New Weird, which we actually wanted to have a question mark after in the title. Um, how, how do you present this material in a way that, that's of interest to an, a general audience? And sometimes, like in New Weird, the, 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 the actual problem is how do you present something to a general audience but also provide something in it that academics will like as well? And how do you do that without boring one or the other audience. And so there's all these, these kind of like very, not intellectual, but, but more on a, on a logical level, uh, kind of almost theory level, uh, things that go into the anthologies that don't go into the fiction. And, th and that really uh, satisfies another part of my creativity. Uh, there's also the fact that we, do, we basically do the anthologies a lot of times to cross-pollinate, because we're always mixing up stuff from genre writers and non-genre writers. And putting them in, actually, literally, they sometimes are in communication with one another. I mean, we'll do readings with writers who would never otherwise have been in an anthology together. And suddenly you see them approaching the same ideas from different ways. And it's really exciting because they're speaking different languages about the same thing. And, and then suddenly realizing there's this common point. But because they're speaking in different languages, they learn something about those things that they thought they knew already. And that's very exciting. Uh, and that's one reason that we really do this kind of stuff, although it drives some of the genre gatekeepers absolutely crazy. Um, you know, the whole don't put the mainstream in our, you know, in our science fiction or whatever, so. Which, which actually, as, you know, as, as a curmudgeon, is, is oddly satisfying as well. Uh, so, <clears throat> that's kind of how they fit in. Anyone else? I think we're good. Appreciate you coming out. Appreciate so, you helping. In that case, let me just say thanks very much. It was a terrific night, Jeff. Thanks for organizing sure. this. Yeah. Um, and to say we have a reception after this, um, if you're interested in yeah. uh, 14E310. If you don't know yeah. where that is, um, yeah. you can follow some of us over. Yeah. And Thanks very have, much. We do have copies of Book Life available. Oh, if, uh, sorry, if copies are available up front. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks to Kevin for great questions. So.